Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, we'll pick up here this evening in verse 1. And uh, if you recall, at the end of the previous chapter, we resumed there in verse 15 a slight progression of events. We started to see things in terms of the end times uh, start to move forward again. Remember, we're in a parenthetical series here, which means that we sort of uh, events of the end times happen, John observes, he writes, and then there's almost like a, a step back from that to do a variety of different things. In our case here tonight, we'll start by sort of looking back. In fact, this chapter is in some respects a survey of salvation history. We go all the way back to the, the beginning, really, and, and this happens throughout Revelation. Sometimes it zooms in a little bit, if you will, goes deeper into a particular event and unpacks it further. And so we're, we're in one of those moments, but at the end of chapter 11, we, we made some progression just for a few verses where we saw the, the seventh trumpet blown and the kingdom of God was proclaimed. There was almost this sense with the seventh trumpet that all of heaven was saying, look, God is winning he is, he is over all things, and so we saw with that, that worship was happening in the throne room of heaven. Uh, there all the elders uh, were on their faces again, worshiping God. And then we saw something super cool, where the temple of God was open there in heaven, and the ark of His covenant could be seen. Remember, we talked a little bit about this last week, that when Moses was instructed to build or to craft the items for the tabernacle, there was specific instruction, and it was understood that these were representative of items in heaven. And so there is a temple in heaven, there is an ark in heaven, and I think there at the end of that chapter, in the midst of just everything that's been happening, because we're now in the second half of the tribulation, and so this is the great tribulation. Things are, are uh, very heavy, for lack of a, a better word, that's, a, that's an understatement here during this time. And so to see then the, the, the temple open and to see the, the Ark of the Covenant, which serves as the mercy seat, the reminder of God's mercy, the reminder of, of Jesus and His atoning sacrifice, uh, the item that is behind the veil that historically only the high priest could could go there, but once a year on the Day of Atonement, now because of Jesus and His sacrifice, it's revealed. So I think for John, even seeing this, it's just this reminder, this comfort. And so, uh, a pretty cool thing there to, to end that scene with. And so John is observing this, and then there's... There's thunderings and lightnings, and then we, from there, step back into uh, a parenthetical section. Now, this new section, as I mentioned, serves as a bit of a survey of salvation history, and we'll see here in this chapter that there is, and not just in this chapter, but several that follow, there is some symbolism that we start to see here uh, as we are introduced to what I would say are several major 
players of the end times. There's seven in total that we'll see, not not tonight, um, seven over the next few chapters. And um, they are, we'll see a, a, a woman, the woman, the dragon, uh, a, a child that's born, Michael, the archangel, the seed of the woman, and then we start to make our way to the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth that'll come in chapter 13. And so this section, as I mentioned, it looks back for a portion. In some respects, it considers even the present, and then it looks forward to the time of the tribulation and uh, the events that will follow. And so the symbolism that we see here or the imagery is fairly straightforward, in my opinion, as John kind of calls it out for us. He tells us when something is a a sign versus uh, something that is to be understood exactly how it is uh, described. And so, of course, like with anything in Revelation, including these things, there's a good bit of debate over the identification of, of some of those that were introduced to here in this chapter and so, no doubt, if you're familiar with the Revelation, you've studied it yourself, you probably are familiar with all the different uh, suggestions for who these individuals might be, and we'll consider some of that here tonight. So we begin here in chapter 12 and verse 1. John says, now a great sign. So there it is. There's a sign appeared in heaven. It's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. So the, the first of these, what I'll call players or agents of the end times, characters of the end times that we're introduced to here in verse, verse 1, is this, uh, this woman. Now John says that this is a great sign uh, that appeared in heaven. So John is seeing these things in heaven, but they portray a reality on earth. They are a sign of something. I don't personally think necessarily that this uh, exact thing that John is describing will be visible to those in the tribulation, but certainly that can be debated and not necessarily something we need to be dogmatic about. And, and I, think, I think this because John says again that this is a sign and he specifically is saying that it was happening in heaven. So he says that the woman is clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, garland of 12 stars on her head. Of course, the question is, who is this woman? It says, verse 2, then being with child, so she's a pregnant woman, and not just that, but she is laboring. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So the woman is with child, and she is crying out in labor and in in pain as she's giving birth. And, of course, many have proposed uh, that this woman is one of a, a variety of different things. Some say that she is representative of Christ, that this is, uh, she is a picture of Christ. Some that she is a picture of the church. Uh, I don't think that either of those fit here. Um, she is going to, as we'll see, give birth to a male child. So it doesn't seem likely that this is Christ. This would be a very new uh, analogy Uh, If this were Jesus, it would be an unusual exchange of the gender forms for Christ. Um, And who would Christ, now suddenly being referred to as a woman, who would he be giving birth to? Um, If it's the church, 
well, then the church is going to be a male child. That doesn't align with what we've historically understood uh, in terms of Christ the bridegroom, the bride the church, and so these would be swapped in terms of their gender. For this woman to be the church, um, secondly, uh, and we'll get there in a moment, um, the one who is born, as I mentioned, is a male child, and and we'll talk further about this, but it's, it's believed by many, and that would include me, that the male child is indeed Christ. So if this woman is the church, well, the church does not give birth to, nor can it, to Christ. The church we know came from the work of Christ. He birthed the church, uh, as it were, not the other way around. Now the Catholic church, who might you think the Catholic church thinks this woman is? Mary, good guess. Um, they refer to her, the Catholic Church refers to Mary as the Queen of Heaven, based off of this very passage. And often, and some of you may have seen it before, I should have gotten a picture to throw up on the screen, often they portray her in pictures uh, described exactly how this passage describes her. And um, given the role, though, that this woman will continue to play here throughout the this, this narrative or this vision that John has, it would be, I think, too much of a reach to consider this woman to be Mary, and um, and of course we know that there's long been a challenge with how the Catholic Church sees and exalts Mary. Um, she is indeed a very special woman, um, blessed among women, but not over all women. Um, and so, uh, some people think it's another Mary. Anybody know who the other Mary is that's been suggested? No, Mary Baker Eddy. Anybody ever heard of Mary Baker Eddy? She's the founder of the Christian science movement. She herself claimed that this is her, or was her. Yeah, that's called a cult. (laughs) Okay, so that's not it. Um, Some say, well, this is the woman and the beast. You've heard this before, right? A woman and the beast. Well, that, that correlation typically goes with the woman who rides the beast. She's yet to come. There is a beast that will show up here, but it's not that partnership that we'll see. Um, In fact, this particular woman uh, we'll see is protected by God, provided for. Uh, This woman is indeed uh, special in the role that we play, in the role that she plays, and and she's not of the evil that we'll see in the rest of this chapter. So who is this woman? Well, this is uh, the view that I take on it, and, and, and I'm not alone on this, but again, some debate this. Uh, let's look for a moment at Genesis. I'll read it for you if you want to turn there. Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Now Jacob, it says, Genesis 37, 1 through 11, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph, verse 5, had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. 
Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. We go back to this dream in Genesis. It bears a striking similarity to the description we see here in Revelation of a woman who's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now Joseph doesn't mention, of course, a woman, but... Many people agree that uh, this woman does not represent Christ, nor the church in general, nor Mary, or certainly Mary Baker Eddy, but is a representative of Israel. Israel, from whom or from which came Jesus Christ. And then eventually, as we'll see, as offspring, other offspring of the woman are mentioned at the end of the chapter, the church, Jew and Gentile alike. And so the allusion to Genesis 37 is, is, uh, is the connection we have um, here to Israel. Um, but then what this does for us is we look at this woman then through the rest of the chapter, if we take such an approach and say, okay, let's look at her as Israel, it really, in my opinion, then allows for the rest of John's vision to align and make sense, especially as we consider end times prophecy. So Israel, we know too, is often presented as the, the wife of Jehovah. It wouldn't be the first time that a woman was used as a representative in such a way. Um, we see in, in the dream the heavenly bodies representative of uh, Jacob and, and Rachel, the connection to the Abrahamic covenant, the stars representative of the sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. We know that Israel is the source really of, of all that we hold dear and believe in, the blessings of God, the Messiah, the Word of God. And in this woman as Israel, we will see, um, will undergo great persecution. We'll see that uh, the the... The dragon that's referred to here in this chapter will unleash great persecution against this being. So uh, this uh, being Israel then uh, would certainly fit. As we know, persecution against Israel has been great from the very beginning. And, uh, and so that's the view that I take of this particular individual. And, and we know with Israel, I mean, Israel... And it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's, it gets, of course, attention even here recently um, because of um, uh, a recent uh, day of memorial. Uh, many people have recognized the plight of the Jewish people throughout history. But it's just an interesting thing to consider how persecuted a nation can be and how it seems so many people have sort of not connected the dots around what, what's up here, right? Why this people? Um, God chose a nation. He chose a nation that would bring forth His Son, the Messiah, incarnate in the flesh. And uh, as we'll see here shortly, as Satan kind of comes into the picture, Satan has made it his aim to stop him from the very beginning. Right? And why are the Jews so hated and so oppressed and so persecuted? 
because of the evil in the world that desires to stop the work of God. Right? And so the specific pain then mentions here this labor pain, right? The specific pain being referred to, I believe, is the pain and travailing of uh, God's people throughout history up to and including the um, birth narrative of Jesus, his birth into a time of Roman oppression and occupation. And so really from the announcement of the coming of the Messiah, even in the... uh, uh, the promise that's given there in Genesis chapter 3 up through his birth, then his flee to Egypt, the terror that ensued uh, in pain and travailing, this child, this Savior, was brought forth into the world. Again, since the birth of Christ, many of the Jews, um, although themselves at times have been complicit in this work used of the enemy, um, God is not done with them, though. God's not done with Israel. And we'll see that as this persecution is carried out, it will be in large part against the remnant that remains, the remnant that exists. 144,000 specifically are spoken of, and more who will surrender to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior during this time. And a great sign of the woman, then, is Israel. God, again, not done with Israel. He's not done with her. And we will see here her history up to and through the Great Tribulation period. So then from here, John writes, verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And so this is the second sign that we see, the fiery red dragon. And this is a symbol of Satan. Uh, The first part of his description is really a parallel reference to Daniel. We know that Daniel uh, bears great significance, the prophecy of Daniel on our understanding of the end times and of Revelation. And so this is really a parallel reference from Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and then verse 24 as well. And, And in that, we see this image um, that certainly speaks of great power, Great power and authority. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, beginning verse 7, writes, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from the kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. Now this is where, and we don't have enough time tonight to really start to unpack just this portion. We could actually do this for a few Wednesdays. This is where prophecy really can start to get certainly interesting, also a little confusing, um, because there's different ways in which we see the fulfillment of prophecy. Now note, I said this was kind of a parallel passage in terms of a similar description to Satan, but we also know that during this time it's, it's believed that there will be Um, a revival of the Roman Empire, and um, that Daniel's vision also likely encompasses uh, aspects of 
uh, political revival that will happen during this time. Uh, this little horn that comes out speaking pompous words, uh, likely the Antichrist uh, who will come to the scene during this time. But all of this, right, being used by and under the power of Satan. And so the description then here in Revelation 12 really is more that of Satan and the authority then that Satan has over many of these things that will be happening during this time, whether it's the rise of the Roman Empire, the influence of the Antichrist. And this is in fact how Satan functions even still today, right? Um, Now, we as believers hopefully have a good understanding of the limit to Satan's authority, certainly in our own lives, but that's not to dismiss the impact, the effect, the authority that Satan does have in this world. He is a formidable foe. He is an adversary, right? And, And he has many in the world under his influence. First John chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Right? Satan has incredible influence in this world and we see that. Right? We see it. The world is under the sway of a great and powerful beast who is intelligent, who is cunning. He is not a weak adversary. In other words, it says that he prowls around. He's hunting. He's seeking whom he may devour. And for any of us who want to suggest that Satan isn't a, a, a real enemy to be considered, well, we better be careful because we fall victim to his temptations and his lies on a regular basis. Right? And so Satan is still active in this world second corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 but even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the god of this age has blinded he's referred to as the god of this age those who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god should shine on them he's blinded many of this age who do not believe And it says his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven. I personally think that this refers to that earlier rebellion. Some call it that primordial war, that battle, whatever it is that happened when Satan uh, originally rebelled and and fell from heaven and took the angels with him. Some uh, are suggesting that this maybe connects to another sort of battle scene that we'll see here shortly. And uh, so for me, again, I think this looks back on Satan's original rebellion when he took a third of the angels with him. It's referenced in Isaiah, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. He says, I will be like the Most High. It's interesting here in a moment, he's going to have a little bit of a tussle with Michael the Archangel. What does Michael mean? Anybody know? Who is like God? So that head angel who says, who's like God, is going to come out and he's going to put a hurting on, uh, on Satan. And so, 
Um, whatever, whatever the case may be, whatever particular time this is, it certainly gives us insight into the fact that uh, Satan has, uh, of course, fallen and took a third of the angels. But the good news is that means there's a majority that are remaining, right? Um, there's, a, there's a bigger uh, encampment on the side of the Lord. And so once again here, not to be understated, the f- that from the very beginning, this is what Satan's been attempting to do, right? Satan's been seeking the place of God from the very beginning, and he deceived Adam and Eve into the same thing, that, convincing them that they could be like God. And from the very beginning, Satan has been attempting to stop God's plan, attempting to destroy the line to the Messiah. He sought to get Adam and Eve off track, and, and it was only in the next generation then that he sought to do the same thing with Cain and Abel. And God blessed and gave another son. And this continued on throughout history, Satan continually seeking to end the line because he knew, he knew that there was a promise that there would be one who would come that would crush his head. Right? And so then what we see here in the remainder of verse 4 and, and verse 5, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan from the very beginning has stood ready there to pounce upon Israel, God's chosen people, to say, I'm going to devour this child. I'm going to end this. I'm going to ensure that the Messiah never comes into this world. But verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And so from Israel comes forth the Messiah. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. So Satan present from even before the birth of the Messiah and then onward. And this, this Messiah, this male child, is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. An allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Satan wants to stop it, but he's uns- unsuccessful in doing so. Satan has lost. Amen? And so what we need to see here is this, and we, we see some time go rather quickly here, pass rather quickly in verse 5 as it says that the, the, the child is born and then caught up to God and His throne. And so what, what, what's seen here and what John records is really an emphasis then on the Messiah is born, Satan is not successful, and he's not successful because... Uh, Jesus has ascended to his rightful place. He has died, been resurrected. Death, sin, the enemy has been defeated. And Jesus is back in his rightful place on the throne. And so what John really communicates here is the work is done. And Jesus is sitting in the very place right, that Satan himself was longing for, that Satan desired. Okay. That's exactly where Satan wanted to be seated. So the woman gives, gives birth here, and as, as David Platt says, and I paraphrase, the birth of Jesus inaugurates the death of Satan. Right? So God's plan, He's faithful in unfolding this plan and bringing it to fruition. Now, some have contested that the child, as I mentioned earlier, well, we were talking more about the woman at that, at that point, but that um, some also say then that the child is the, the church. 
and uh, that they are foretelling, or that this is a foretelling of when we will reign with Christ during the millennium. However, again, the emphasis on the gender and the Greek, uh, to me, would align more consistently with that being Jesus, the emphasis there on the male child, whereas the church has long been uh, referred to in the female, in the bride of Christ. Um, So Satan again, has been seeking to devour Jesus from the very beginning. But now, as he stands before the the woman, as he stands before Israel, and Satan realizes, at least thus far, that he has failed in his effort to stop the Messiah, we must understand that he is angrier than ever, knowing that his time is limited. Right? That his time is limited. Um, So Jesus, of course, is caught up to his rightful place and he will return once more in glory for the world to see. We long for that. We await that, the rapture of the church and his glorious second coming. And so we see then in verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So again now, we've, we've, we've looked essentially all the way back to the very beginning, uh, then we on up through um, the ascension of Jesus, and then into the church age of which we are currently living, and then forward to the time of the Great Tribulation. So the woman here, Israel, she flees into the wilderness. Again, all in this scene that John is observing. And it says that there's a place prepared by God. So God's, we talked earlier during the time of praise, some of you mentioned God's provision. We've seen His provision throughout history. We see His provision here in the future for His people. It's a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So again, we see three and a half years, the second half uh, in my opinion, of the seven-year tribulation. So again, what we need to recognize then here is there's a, a big uh, span of time that passes quickly from verses 5 to verse 6 as Jesus is caught up into heaven. And then in verse 6, we see the fleeing of the remnant into the wilderness for a period of three and a half years. So um, now very much forward-looking. The first half of the tribulation, remember, is going to be a relatively peaceful time compared to the second half of the tribulation. And so this second half is the time of the Great Tribulation when the remnant will seek refuge and find protection. Because in the middle of the seven-year tribulation will be the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist is revealed for who he is, that he's of Satan, and he'll set himself up in the temple to be worshipped, and that's when quite, quite literally all hell is going to break loose on earth. And so it will be understood by those who... Who, who know then what's, what's really happening in this moment, that they need to flee, they need to go, they need to seek protection. And, uh, and those that think that the, the child then is the church would tend to look at this then uh, in terms of sort of a, a mid-tribulational rapture of the church, that this would be the time when the church would be uh, taken away and protected. Um, for what it's worth. And, uh, and so again, we've got to ask ourselves, so who, who is the woman then? Is the woman 
the church is the woman Israel. Like this is where, depending on the stance that you take, and then you carry that out through the rest of the chapter, it can have some implications for some of the other events. And so as I mentioned earlier, if we look at the woman as Israel, then the events that we start to see unfold here start to, in my opinion, make a little bit more sense. Because um, if the woman is Israel, uh, especially over, say, for example, Mary, why would Mary flee to the wilderness for three and a half years? Um, No, this is the remnant of Israel that remains. And um, now many believe that the place that, that at least many, if, if not all, will flee to is what? Petra, that's right. Anybody familiar with Petra? Yeah, okay. Where have you seen it before? Indiana Jones, right? That's where a lot of people become familiar with Petra. There's an old guy in there, King Arthur or something, right, who's guarding the Holy Grail or something, I don't know. Um, it's actually a place that you can go visit. Thousands of people, sometimes depending on the season, will go there a day. Um, and uh, it is that rock-like facade that um, that built into the into the wall in a in a canyon. And it's said that we don't. I don't know this for sure. I suppose I suppose maybe some can confirm this. It's said that there's uh, uh, been a a group of of Christian business people that have sought to stock. Uh, Petra with non-perishable food um, for this very occasion that when people flee there during the time of the tribulation that they will be cared for. I suppose it could be that God worked in that way. Um, We don't know. And moreover, we don't know that that's exactly where they will go um, uh, or certainly everybody, right? Um, So anyhow, they'll seek refuge in the wilderness. There's there's going to be this this fleeing that happens uh, from... Uh, the enemy. And uh, and then we read here, verses 7 and 8, it says, and war broke out in heaven. So all these different things are are, are happening, and now John says, and and war breaks out here, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, or demons, fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Okay? So a war will break out here in heaven. We don't know exactly when this is. There's different theories as to when is this war actually happening. Again, some align this with like, okay, is this back to the earlier rebellion? I don't think so. Um, because it says here that there was no place found for them in heaven any longer. And I believe based off of primarily what we see in the book of Job, that Satan and his demons do still have at least some limited access to heaven today. And so this particular event, we'll talk about that in a moment, this particular event seems to serve as somewhat of a victory here in that uh, Satan is cast down from heaven for good, banished. Uh, And so Michael the archangel is leading the charge here with his host of angels and this truly will be an epic battle. And many have been troubled, uh, again, kind of to go back to this idea of Satan in heaven by the thought of this battle taking place in heaven, and that Satan would even be allowed there. But as I mentioned, um, Job tells us some interesting things, right? In uh, Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. 
and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And you know kind of how the story goes there. And so what that gives us some insight to is that Satan still has access to heaven or at least the ability to come before God. But what that also, for those that maybe it troubles them, that also reinforces who's in power. God, he has ultimate authority. That's one of the clear things we see established in the book of Job. And so what we also then know is that Satan's time for his access is short-lived. As he begins to do battle with Michael, we see this final standoff between these two figures that will result in Satan again being cast down, banished, gone, uh, cast away from the presence of God forever. And it says, so verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out. He was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So Satan, listen, does not prevail. Satan does not prevail. There's no place found for him. He's cast out. He loses and he'll continue to lose. It says the serpent of old, the devil, the deceiver. And that's important for us. When we see this passage here, we, you know, when we want to understand who Satan is, you want to understand who your enemy is, that's who it is. Right? Now you might be doing battle some days with uh, some, you know, private first class demon, but and not Satan himself, because remember, differently than our God. Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Right? So sometimes people are like, man, I'm doing, I'm doing battle with the devil today. and Probably not. <laughs> probably just some, some little guy who's really getting under your skin, right? Um, when the devil shows up, that's, that's quite a battle. But understand that, that whether it's Satan himself or his demons, man, they're deceivers liars right satan deceives continually that's what he's been about from the very beginning and he deceives as a counterfeit angel of light he's the king of the the children of pride in this world he's the prince of this world the god of this age he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he's a thief who only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy and so we have to understand that that's who he is and and i think it's a sad thing too sometimes when you know, we, we're in difficult situations and we're, we're seemingly engaged in, in, in battle with, with one another and we fail to, to, to remember that, man, we, we are not one another's enemies, right? That it's, it's Satan. He is the one who's come to steal and kill and to destroy. And so there's no place for him. He's going to be cast down as we serve the true light of the world, the King of Kings, the, the Prince of Peace, the, the Lord our God, the, the true Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Right? That's who's in control. That's who we serve. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. Listen, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. He is an accuser. Do you know that? He's a liar. Do you know that? He's a deceiver. Do you know that? We have to ask ourselves, man, how many times do I buy into it? How many times do I listen to it? Relentlessly, 
He seeks to accuse us. Speaking those lies into your ears. What a loser. What a failure. Right? I never amount to anything. You're beyond God's grace. He can't forgive you for this. His grace is not sufficient for you. You've done too much. You've gone too far. Right? He's mad at you now. Remember how your, your, your earthly family treats you? Remember how your dad treated you? How your mom treated you? How this person treated you? Why is God going to be any different? I mean, we can come up with all kinds of lies that we listen to and believe and buy into. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. So what do we do? Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Right? When the enemy is speaking lies into your life, into your, your ears, and you know you're being led astray, you know, you're, you're buying into it, you're believing the accusations that are coming your way, that's, that's when you get to tell the enemy to go to hell, right? You get to say, look, many of you know the story, if you've been around for very long, I've told it a million times, but it's always so fitting. Tradition tells the story of Martin Luther, some of you know this. It's tradition. But it said that he's in his study there at Warburg Castle, and and uh, that one night, and he dealt with Luther dealt with some with serious spiritual warfare and times of oppression and depression, and and it said that one night there he was studying, and uh, it was late in the evening, and he he says that uh, the devil comes, begins to accuse, <clears throat> and he said that uh, the enemy just began to accuse him of all different things, to declare to him the failure that he was, a list of names, all these accusations, all these things. And most of the time, right, it's our insecurities and, and our worst fears. And, and the enemy's just coming at him. It's this time of incredible spiritual uh, uh, oppression, demonic oppression. And Luther, it says, he's writing each one down. Every lie that the enemy speaks, he writes it down. Another one writes it down. Another one writes it down. And eventually he gets to a place where the voices are quieted and he, he says, are you finished? And silence still and he says, you forgot one. Covered by the blood of the Lamb. And it says that he picked up his inkwell and he threw it at the wall. And you can still see the little blot of ink. That's where the tradition comes from. In, the, uh, in his study still today. Perhaps it is just that. It's just tradition. But that's every believer's victory. Right? The fact is, when the, when the enemy comes to accuse us, sometimes it's effective or it hurts because it's rooted in some truth that we know about ourselves. 
It's rooted in some past failure. It's rooted in something that we've experienced. And, and so we do. We begin to think, yeah, that is all that I am. That's all that I'm ever going to be. That's, that's, it, it's true. And, and I can't believe that, that God would forgive me or would, uh, that I can overcome this or, or whatever. And, and so sometimes the enemy's attacks are that effective because it's rooted in an element of our past. But what is the truth and how we do overcome and what becomes the victory cry of every believer is that the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is upon every believer. You're covered. And so no, God doesn't see you that way anymore. He sees His Son. And we have that victory then by the word of our testimony by declaring, I know Jesus. I know Him. He died for me. He's at- my sin is atoned for. I'm justified. I am not that man anymore. My past doesn't define me anymore. My failures and my weaknesses are not who I am. I'm a child of God. Amen? That's the word of our testimony. That we declare what the Gospel has done. We declare what Jesus has done. Furthermore, and what's and, and, and how do we how do we know that this testimony is true of us? It says that they did not love their lives to the death, that we would have a sense, like those who have gone before us, that he is greater, right? That we have a loose grip on our life and the things of this world, like we considered this last Sunday. How precious is the gospel to us, right? We get to a place where we say he is greater, Jesus is greater. And so think of those. Think of those who have gone before us. Those who are victorious because they said, man, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Think of the martyrs throughout history. They were victorious because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Therefore, verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And so what we need to understand in light of this is two things. One, the attacks of the enemy are going to get worse and worse. They're going to get worse and worse. And the more you do for the cause of Christ, the greater the target on your back. But here's the second thing. Satan knows he's running out of time. Do you know that? Or do you give him more credit? Do you give him more power than what he's due? He's running out of time. And so, we can have confidence then. We can have confidence in... Once again, the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, we can, we can know, we've got, we know how the story ends, we can, we can remember that, but we also need to be aware, right? We need to understand His attacks, we need to know that He's going to come at us, we need to know that He's getting angrier and angrier and angrier, especially because He knows His time is short and so He's seeking to take out everybody that He can. And can you, can you at least look at your own life, can you reflect on your, your own life and think of the times when you're doing something great for the Lord or God is working in your life or you're making steps in the right direction towards pursuing him and growing in him and what happens the enemy comes at you he's going to mess everything up 
It's not to say that anybody who's in a good season in life, who's just got some peace, is not doing something for the Lord, okay? Sometimes that's just His grace, right? Oh, thank you, Lord, for a peaceful season. But sometimes the enemy is just not messing with you because you're not doing anything for Him. Let me tell you, the spiritual attacks that have been coming upon our body, the spiritual attacks that have been coming against this ministry, the spiritual attacks that have been coming against me, even in the last few weeks, holy smokes! It's like, Lord, I'm waking up in the morning, I'm like, what's going to happen today? And everybody I call, every brother I call you, because you're like, oh man, i got to call my friends. <laughs> Bro, will you pray for me? And it's super cool because some of my, some of my pastor buddies that I'll call, and, and you know, sometimes I haven't talked to some of them in a couple of weeks, and one guy I called him, and I was like, bro, and he's like, I already know. I've been praying for you every day this week. And I'm like, no kidding? He's like, yeah, the Lord's just been telling me you got to pray. And then I call another buddy, and I'm like, man, will you pray? As I said, I didn't, I didn't tell him. I said, I'm praying for you. I just want you to know this isn't like a one-way thing. I'm praying for you, but you, will you pray for me? And he's like, what's going on? I tell him, he's like, dude, the exact same thing is happening here. And so everybody, though, has encouraged me, too, with like, man, keep, keep it up, because the enemy wants to disrupt the work that's happening, right? He's going to come at you. But we need to understand why. We need to understand that His time is short. And we need to remember that God is faithful and He's got this. He's in control. Verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so now, again, persecution is going to pick up here. He's angry. The dragon's cast from heaven. He begins his persecution of Israel. And then the church. His, his persecution of Israel is purely because of the significant role Israel plays in God's plan of redemption. In verse 14, but, that's a good but, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so this is another reference to three and a half years, second half of the tribulation. Israel and the remnant is divinely protected. Okay? The reference to an eagle here is used elsewhere, especially Exodus 19, where God talks about uh, taking Israel out of Egypt. And this is really speaking to God's involvement in protecting them and carrying them. We often see that in Scripture. And look, Jesus talked about this. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, it says, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This three and a half years is going to be the worst time of suffering that the world has ever seen. And unless those days were shortened, verse 22, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So God will protect and provide for His people, but Satan's attack will increase in intensity. So it says, verses 15 through 17, that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this period of three and a half years following the abomination of desolation, the persecution against the Jews and the the church that remains, the redeemed of that time, it will be unprecedented. Never before will the magnitude uh, of of this time be experienced um, or will have been experienced. And so this is an example then. What we need to see here again, and this is what keeps coming up over and over and over again, is that this is an example of God's divine protection. Right? This is, and even here, we don't know exactly what this looks like. Some people, like, oh, this is a, this is a literal flood. Some people, this is, a, uh, this is like a flood of, of persecution uh, coming in various forms. Uh, and then the, the earth is actually like swallowing up a flood or the earth is functioning in some supernatural capacity. All of these things, or any one of these things, could really be true. We've seen these things throughout history. We've seen where God has used, I mean, as He brought Israel out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, what happened? The earth swallowed up its enemy. Um, less than about saying this is exactly how this is going to happen. More important is seeing that God cares for, protects, and provides for his people. And Satan, as futile as it may be, he seeks to make war against all those who believe in Jesus. And we have to understand that. And yes, it's being experienced more significantly and severely in this time than it is right now, but it's growing, it's building. And we have to understand who our enemy is, what he's about, what his tactics are, how he comes against us, and that ultimately he's not going to be victorious and he doesn't need to be today. We see here that the battle that has been waged from the very beginning is still ongoing, but God's been faithful. And Satan's time is short. He knows it, but do we? And do we live our lives each day without understanding? And Satan, you're not going to win. You've already lost. And so there is an element that as we focus on the work of the cross, we declare it, the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. Right, it serves to help us live victoriously in this life. Amen? Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.